people all over this country are wondering whether or not this great country is evolving into an oligarchic society. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that combines military, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. The structure of financial controls created by the tycoons of big banking and big business was of extraordinary complexity. They could influence the economic life of the country to a large degree and could almost control its political life. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No secret is revealed. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today will be part three of the collaborative episode that I did with the Panoptic podcast to give you a little bit of a refresher. We had, Jason had actually just talked a little bit about the role of government contractors and how that has been changing and evolving in modern times, talked a little bit about war and um, starting to get into um, the time period that a lot of us can relate to, our more recent past. And um, so I'm just going to start off where he left off and uh, go ahead and play the next part of that. I have one quick comment, Jason. I think it's I think it really links up to what yep. we were talking about in a really fascinating way. If we, you know, if we were talking about precisely Hobbes' sort of like theory of government of politics, right? The idea, and this this is really interesting the way you're framing it, because the idea was that all of these people in nature who were apt to kill each other, and therefore could only neutralize their basically violent life and their power through delegating that power to one, the sovereign, to the state, as sort of the legitimate holder of violence, right? You know, if you think about it, only the state is allowed to take a life away. Only the state's allowed to, right. to kill somebody uh, in the name of the public interest by putting them on the chair, right? Only the state is supposed to lock somebody up, not a private citizen. But this is, this is you know, in, 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 inscribed into an institutional framework is this, is this tension between public interest and private gain that, in a way, it, when, the way you frame it, going back to Machiavelli, it was already really felt, I think, by a lot of political theorists, how privatizing the means of, politi- of violence, right? The means of, of in this case, uh, ex- in, in this case, you could say it's the means of, exped- uh, of expressing power abroad. And also, to an extent, you know, if we talk about uh, the militarization of police at home, right, and surveillance, and the big, uh, the big huge uh, influx of contracts for things like surveillance in our cities and so forth, linked to policing. How the, the power of the state is, in a sense, uh, the legitimate power of the state, which is supposed to be reactive to the public interest and to that to public opinion, is to an extent captured by these industries, which have a private interest, right? The interests of whoever's making surveillance equipment is not illegal, is not the justice of, of of the legal system, but making sure that they create stuff that the police will buy um, and implement in urban areas in the United States. Or, or right. you know, if we're talking about for you know mercenaries in the U.S. Army, if you want to call them that, right? It's it's buying their technology is to implement in warfare, uh, which also, I mean, brings up the question of to what extent does that short circuit the capacity for us as a polity to create an actual uh, sensible foreign policy when you know we were talking about this a few days ago jason uh i was giving you the the case of let's say latin america and the and the the war against drugs right when the war against drugs becomes militarized and becomes treated as a as a as a production and not a consumption as a, a problem as a you know Supposedly, by stopping production in places like Bolivia and Colombia and Mexico and so forth, you stop you stem the problem rather than a demand problem of people. You know, of a huge market here, which makes it a hugely valued project product. That if you can get it into the border, you know, it's a five thousand percent you know profit margin. And therefore, there's going to be actors in those countries that are going to do everything they can to make sure they get it in here. And it's going to completely, you know, in, in the context of weak nation states, it's going to, in a sense, the money, the capital 
the violence that's going to flow through it's going to it's going to disrupt those societies in ways that we can hardly I think really imagine. Uh, we can ask the question when when we are in a sense tracked into a system of fighting the drug war through uh, through militaristic means rather than let's say other means. We uh, and there are interest industries or companies with lots to gain in terms of the products that they sell to the government, whether it's things for helicopters or things for spraying fields uh, where, you know, where poor farmers in, in Bolivia and, and other countries are going, are growing these things because they need to survive. Um, you know, we have, I mean, this really brings up a, a, a question of how, to what extent is our foreign policy sensible and not being short-circuited in terms of public opinion by private interests. I think your framing is really interesting in that sense, the way bringing in mercenaries and, bring, and privatizing these elements goes against, or in, in a sense, is very much in tension with our, what's supposed to be a tradition of, of having a legitimate actor that, 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 uh, that uh, is the only one that's supposed to act uh, in the legitimate uh, application of violence, right? Well, so p particularly after 9-11, there is a perception that there is a need that the government needs the private sector yeah. to effectively fight its wars. Yeah. And that may be partially true because of some organizational systemic issues we can we can talk yeah. about. But it's also uh, kind of a failure from a certain perspective of the government to you know find itself in that position in the first mm -hmm. place and then how it kind of escalates and takes us to where we are today. I'd be curious to hear more of what you're tracking on that is, Jason, because I'm not, I mean, I wonder how far back it goes. I mean, everybody knows and remembers Eisenhower's favorite, famous sort of warning. You know, think about who, who was giving this warning. A general, former general, now president, was giving a warning saying, hey, watch out, there's this thing called, there's this, there's this nexus forming a military industrial complex. And... By the way, this was a war, you know, this was a Cold War warrior saying this. This wasn't like some lefty, you know, radical. This was this was a guy who had been, you know, running U.S. foreign policy in a very militaristic and active manner uh, overseas, saying, "Hey, watch out, U.S. populists. There's this thing, this nexus forming the military-industrial complex, and it's gonna, it's gonna be." You know, it's going to determine the, the, the direction of our foreign policy. And I, I'm curious as to what extent, and of course at that point it wasn't really privatized, but I wonder to what extent there's uh, the history of where we get to this privatization goes back then, and maybe it's just an open-ended question for you, Jason. I don't know if you know the answer to that. Sure. I, I don't have a good answer, but I think there's a lot we can learn just by looking um, at what happens after 9-11 yeah. and seeing how the the structure of, of the Defense Department and other other departments who are involved in military action uh, begins to shift. Um, so we get into 9-11, of course, you know, of course, there's a, na a massive need for military resources in Afghanistan. And uh, later Ambassador Paul Bremer's policy of debathification stripped Iraq of all institutions and educated uh, demographics. The policy was really to rebuild Iraq and secure Afghanistan by outsourcing 50% of the military workforce to contractors on a lowest price, technically yeah, acceptable yeah. basis. So that means they're competing on price, not on quality. So in 2000, total defense contract obligations sat just under $200 billion. But um, by 2008, defense spending on contractors doubled, peaking at $450 billion. That doesn't include diplomatic and other yeah. government spending on private military services. Uh, in, in fact, the flagship mercenary firm, Blackwater, was contracted almost exclusively by the State Department in Iraq and Afghanistan under the $10 billion Worldwide Protective Services contract. You know, this is the most lethal mercenary firm in the world working under the banner of the State Department's yeah. ostensibly diplomatic mission overseas, right. just to point out the irony there. Um, to be clear, you know, yes, military contracting was and remains a multi-billion dollar industry, but in Iraq and Afghanistan, the government's policy was to keep costs as low as possible. You know, they said, we're going to make 
uh, companies compete on a lowest price basis to execute sensitive military operations overseas. And you get what you pay for. So in 2007, a cadre of Blackwater mercenaries massacred innocent people in downtown Baghdad. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. But it took an international reputational crisis for State Department to fire Blackwater. Now, part of the issue is that the government's procurement strategy was reactionary, uncoordinated, and lacked internal controls. And this is really key. The military didn't have the resources, the staff, the technology to properly oversee and understand what U.S. contractors were doing in remote, hostile environments. Now, the 2011 Wartime Commission identified many of these problems, and there have been some reforms, but these fundamental issues, lowest price and limited accountability, still persist today. Uh, and more fundamentally, we might ask if we should be outsourcing military functions at all. Of course, the U.S. military is far from perfect, so we, we could certainly argue that contractors have done really good work, in some cases superior work in Iraq and Afghanistan, but um, I digress. So I, I want to draw the connection to technology here. But yeah. Did you have something to say? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I want to... I had something to say, but I'm curious if Josh, you know, what are you thinking of, or what questions that have popped up with you, Josh, Joshua? Well, I do have many thoughts about war and military and the ind military industrial complex. Um, I guess mainly going back to what I've mentioned before about um, something being ideal versus being realistic or historical. And if you look at, most modern wars and how we got into them and how we fought them, it doesn't really seem as though we did it in such a way to win a war quickly and efficiently. And some would argue that was deliberate. Some would argue that that was just government inefficiency and ineptitude. But regardless of what the reason is, um, if you look at Vietnam, for example, you briefly mentioned that the reason why we sent ground troops to Vietnam was because of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. And what that was, was one of our ships supposedly had been attacked. Well, it came out a while later, I think it was a decade later or more, that that actually never happened, that that was a made-up event, and that the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was something that had been written before that event supposedly took place. And this was declassified, it's official government information now, and so we know that the reason we got into Vietnam was a lie. Now, we still may have gotten into it anyway, and there were probably other circumstances going on, but... The point is that there was some conflicting information there as far as what was being presented versus what was really happening. And then if you look at the rules of engagement for Vietnam, uh, for example, our planes were not allowed to shoot at enemy planes unless shot upon first. And if we saw air defenses being built on the ground in Vietnam or enemy aircraft on the ground, we weren't allowed to shoot at them. We had to wait till the defenses were completely built and then we had to wait for them to fire on us, and then we could destroy them. And same with the planes. We had to wait for them to take off, then had to wait for them to fire at us before we could shoot at them. And I think something like 90% of the airstrikes requested during Vietnam were denied. And so if you look at kind of why we got into that war and how it was fought, it... it does seem reminiscent of the wars in the Middle East, where you have things like maybe weapons of mass destruction that turns out didn't really exist. And I guess that's technically arguable. But you have many reasons of why we go to war, such as bin Laden is a good example. You mentioned him. Well, the Taliban was willing to give up bin Laden to a third party state. They weren't going to give him up to us because they thought he wouldn't receive a fair trial, uh, understandably so. But they were willing to give him up to a third state. And we said no. And instead, we invaded the country. And like you mentioned, we had opportunities to take him out individually without any sort of large scale conflict. And that was not the route we chose to take. Um, you mentioned that we have a low-cost decision-making process. Um, the question would be, is that to save money, which is what they say it is for, or is that to prolong conflict? And regardless of the answer to that question, the result is that more money has been spent because the conflict never ends. It's a never-ending war. If you look at the realities on the ground in somewhere like Afghanistan, the Taliban had actually lowered the production of heroin to below 10% of what it was prior to our invasion. 
now that we went into Afghanistan, within a few years, production had risen not only back to its prior levels, but much higher than the previous levels. And our soldiers were defending the poppy fields because the argument would be that the citizens there, they relied on that. That was their main source of income. That was their economic system that they lived with. They farmed and they exported. And so we wanted to protect their well-being. And so that's why we protected the drugs. And so on one hand, yes, that makes sense. On the other hand, that seems a little fishy. And so uh, we see the the broken window fallacy being implemented a lot. I hear guys say this, that, well, war is good for the economy. And the whole point of the broken window fallacy is that, yes, if someone throws a rock through my window deliberately, then I do have to go find somebody to repair my window. And I spend money on that. And um, there is money spent on materials and there's money spent on labor. So on a surface level, that seems like that's good for my local economy. Well, The reality is that I had this money. Let's say it was $100 that cost to fix my window. Well, I had that $100. So if this guy wouldn't have intentionally broken my window, I would have used that $100 in the way that I saw best would be the best use of my resources. And I probably would have spent it on something. It wouldn't have been a window that already exists that is not broken. That's kind of dumb. And so to break a window just to spur a small amount of economic spending it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny if you look at the fact that that money was already there and would have been spent anyway. And so basically, you just wasted the money instead of spending it efficiently and productively. And so if you look from a military standpoint, we see that a lot that a lot of people view war as something that spurs the economy. And we have all this spending on these military contractors and on these um, weapons that we buy and the drones and the planes and the bombs and all these things. That's a lot of money. Um, Trump has continued to raise the military budget. And that happens again and again and again. And that is a lot of money. And that does filter down into the economy eventually. But uh, just overall, you have this ideal of, hey, this is a good thing. Hey, we really need to go here. But the reality is a little different. And the information we receive is filtered through different sources that might filter out some of the true information and uh, not filter out some of the things that are desired to be believed. And through that, we end up with... My argument, it might be a little controversial, would be to say that we have human sacrifice, that that is something that has existed throughout history, throughout the ages. It used to be religious. Nowadays, it is not. But when something bad happens, society as a whole needs to feel that they have received vengeance. They need revenge. They they need a cathartic event to make them feel better. And 9-11 is the perfect example. After 9-11 happened, Americans were outraged. They demanded vengeance. They demanded that someone pay for this. And so, in a way, a lot of the war that happened directly after and that really hasn't ended since made people feel better. It was cathartic for society as a whole. It's, oh, they got what they deserved. I've heard the comment many times, we'll just bomb them all. And I guess people don't think that they're talking about innocent women and children when they say all of them. And they really do mean that, though. So it's kind of interesting. But um, the point is that there are a lot of different incentives that are at play here, but all of the incentives align with going to war and staying at war. So if you look at the government, the government gets more power when they're in a state of war. World War I was very much this way, and uh, post 9-11 with Patriot Act, very much this way as well. And if you look at corporations, they're incentivized to go to war for profit. They make a lot of money. They sell a lot of goods and services to the government, so it's good for them. And then citizens really want to go to war for American pride. I had a coworker today actually say something about how, you know, he doesn't want any other country to be superior to America and we need to go over there and we need to fight them and we need to take them out. And that's his attitude. And that's the attitude of a lot of Americans. And so, yeah, if you look at the incentive models and look at some of the corruption involved, then we see that it it seems inevitable that we're going to go to war and we're going to stay at war because everybody's incentivized to do so. 
And so that that would be my um, kind of uh, side point here in the more contrarian perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to agree with you in general that war has become a racket. <laughs> and it, yes, met and, the button. And, 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 and then we could almost, I mean, we could almost say that since World War II, there hasn't been a popular a war that society mobilized with, uh, to it at a large scale and had mass approval and where really there was a, a sort of, it was a mass uh, effort by, by American society. I mean, we could, we, we just have to look at any videotape from Vietnam to see that it was, that Vietnam was a very controversial affair. Um, we're not, we're by no means were people sort of willing to, women to go into factories and men to line up to go to war. Um, but people were burning, you know, cards and and uh, their military cards and 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 all and there were all kinds of there was all kinds of civil discord about these things. So I mean, and we could I think we could go into a, a very a broad and, and deep discussion on what exactly happens after World War II that that directs foreign policy in a certain way. You know, I think where where I'd like to pick off pick up uh, from for a second. Um, or maybe redirect a little bit back to you, Jason, is, is uh, you know, I think it is, and I think part of what you were saying too, Josh, is how there seems like, if we look at it from this context of political theory, where violence is supposed to be legitimately wielded in a, in a legal sense, right? And where there's supposed to be a justification for that violence, whether it's domestic or foreign, and in a way, um, ideally, if you think about it, ideally that you know, violence overseas would only be, in a sense, uh, mobilized by the state you know, in the, with some legitimate interests at stake, right? And we could probably look at wars and we could disagree and agree about whether a legitimate interest was at stake. I mean, we could probably say the War of 1812. I mean, obviously a very legitimate interest when a young republic is being attacked by its former colonizer and saying, hey, you know, fighting for its independence, uh, and so forth. We could talk about the legitimacy of it. I think things become really complex after World War II when we start talking about when, as Jason points out, when suddenly the state is to an, is to an extent, and, and especially after 9-11, I think, Jason, you're trying to emphasize this, this change, and I think you're right, there is a, there's obviously a very huge change at this point. How much uh, war becomes an industry with lobbying interests, with uh, all kinds of connections to the regulatory administrative state, to the executives, to politicians. Uh, we could talk about things like the influence of money in our politics. But the fact is there seems to be a short circuit of the supposed separation of powers, the supposed flow of communicative action from the public sphere, public, which is formed into public opinion, which is supposed to influence the legislative process into a legitimate law uh, uh, producing system, which is then supposed to be applied by the executive. And another thing that I think, Jason, you you, you obviously will always bring up is this the way in which the executive has become not only a, an, uh, a branch that applies law, but that also produces law by edict, right? We could talk about how, yeah. you know, Obama, Obama gets elected and he rolls out certain things in terms of um, um, climate uh, protections and so forth, or you could talk about trade policy and sanctions policy with Cuba. If you want to talk about foreign policy, you could talk about all kinds of things. And then you have, uh, you know, then you have a new president and all these things get rolled back, right? There's, there's a way in which the executive has a huge leeway in terms of what they can do uh, with that. Did you have, um, did you have other elements of this, Jason? Um, yeah, I wanted to start drawing the connection to technology. Uh, your point about the executive branch trespassing in legislative affairs and also vice versa, kind of the legislative branch deferring that authority to the executive branch may actually tie into how we think about why has the government not been very good at overseeing our contractors overseas? And then also this kind of lack of understanding and knowledge about technology and the ability to properly regulate big data. So I think we're going to see some interesting connections there. It's worth noting that every president, at least for the past 
uh, two or three decades has, you know, regardless of party affiliation, has done more and more through executive action. You know, one perspective is that the powers of the legislative branch have become more and more um, constricted. And, and partly, I mean, this could be through uh, the legislative branch itself deciding to defer this authority away because the, the kinds of policies that are required are too complex for the legislative body to uh, understand and manage themselves. <clears throat> and maybe we'll get back to that later. But yeah, let, let, let's draw this link to technology now. So, I mean, the government's unprecedented use of, of private military contractors is one example of new capitalist uh, institutions appropriating authority away from the state, authority from the state, uh, and or the state, like I said, deferring authority to the markets. But, uh, and that's kind of an interesting parallel as well. But, but maybe big tech is the big picture here. So if we go back in time to the Federal Trade Commission privacy law debates in 1997, uh, tech industry specialists lobbied to prevent the introduction of regulations on the collection of personal data. And they argued that tech firms were capable of self-regulation and that government intervention would be costly and counterproductive. Um, on the other side of the aisle, mostly uh, libertarian groups, they voiced concerns about companies accruing large swaths of personal data posing a threat to civil liberties. And a commissioner asked, where should we draw the line between the uses and applications of big data in the electronic age the, and, and personal privacy? And this scenario comes straight from uh, Shoshana Zuboff's recent NY Times article, You Are Now Remotely Controlled. Uh, a lot of pathos in, in, in that name. But, but I mentioned her earlier, and I think I'm, I'm going to refer back to her a lot because I think she makes some very interesting points on the rise of big tech and makes it kind of easy to see some connections between big tech and, and capitalism and contractors in general, kind of in this post-9-11 era. So according to Zuboff, the commissioner's line was never drawn, and 20 years of history shows that basically the tech industry won out here. So around the same time, the government started pouring money into large tech-oriented management consultancies like Booz Allen, McKinsey, Accenture, and others, um, not just to support military operations, but also to optimize efficiencies, cut costs, and improve mission effectiveness. Uh, my intuition here is that the government's increasing dependency on private military contractors helped expedite the government's inevitable uh, increasing dependency on management consultancies and later tech firms. And between 2001 and 2018, federal spending on IT grew by an average of 3% every year. Total spending on IT today is over $100 billion. And according to a recent Bloomberg government report, by the end of the fiscal year, roughly 100% of the government's IT budget will be contract funds. So in other words, tech firms will manage all of the government's technical knowledge, resources, and capability. And part of the issue here is that tech people don't want to work for the government. Uh, there are perceptions that the government is slow, bureaucratic, traditional, rank-oriented, and far too concerned about what you do, what you smoke, in your, per in your personal time. That's especially not good if you're a, a tech geek. So the <laughs> right. government... The government simply cannot attract the tech labor it needs to compete with the markets. And similar perceptions influenced the collapse of military enrollment over the past several decades. After 9-11, barely experienced soldiers were just aching to transition into companies like Blackwater, which paid higher wages, saw more action, and operated outside kind of the oppressive military hierarchy. Hmm. So there was a recent study that found data to be more valuable than oil, and I think the realization that data wasn't just an instrument, but com a completely new market unto itself yeah. is really what kicked modern capitalism into hyperdrive. Um, and by modern capitalism, I mean thinking in the post-9-11 era. Post so in, yeah. In, a, yeah, in, a, in a matter of years, surveillance capitalists have become the dominant arbiters of 21st century knowledge. Yeah. And some of this, especially... Uh, um, that data is more valuable than oil. I should just uh, plant a flag. This was this was an Andrew Yang talking point, and I'm extremely <laughs> um, saddened that right before we started recording, I saw that Andrew Yang had dropped dropped out of the race. Oh, um, I hadn't seen that. Just yeah, Juan and I have gone back and forth on uh, Yang quite a bit, but but he he really um, a lot of his talking points uh, fit nicely in kind of the the conversations we're having on yeah. big data and technology and. Yeah really kind of a dystopian view of, of what that could mean and, and how we should think about regulating it. So it's too bad he, he we won't be hearing from him for a little <laughs> bit longer. 
Until next time. Until next anyway, time, Jason. Uh, <laughs> he'll be back. Oh, I'm sure he'll be he'll back. He'll be back, yeah. Jason. <laughs> I'll hold your hand until he gets back. Joshua, do you, do you have any thoughts on Andrew Yang? Quick. Um, not in particular. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I agree. I like how he's um, bringing up some of these topics that don't seem to be um, on the minds of a lot of citizens and politicians both. And he's got some interesting views. Um, I, I personally view it more as if he were to get elected and get absolutely everything he wanted, that the resulting effect would probably be more dystopian than utopian. It's To me, at least, it seems as though it sounds really good, but in reality, as long as we still have a capitalist society, um, I worry about how that would actually play out. But the, the more interesting thing to me is the rise of techno-populism in general, where you have this mm-hmm. with, I think it's, is it the Pirate Party um, over in Europe? And there's some other parties around the world that are rising up that are proponents of things like universal basic income and cryptocurrencies and using tech and data um, to make decisions, governance decisions, and using things like social media very efficiently and effectively and it's this influence of tech, but it's populist movements, and it's just kind of interesting. It's an interesting thing that has come up recently in society that I don't believe has been around for very long. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and there's a lot. I mean, we're, there's a lot there in terms of these these I think backlash populist movements as they relate to tech, and I think that's a really important, really really interesting field to look at um, because it, it brings up something that I think links up with what you're talking about, Jason, which is uh, this lobbying effort by private enterprise, right? Because they understood, I think, that soon they would be able to capitalize on data. Um, this goes precisely to the heart of what we're talking about in terms of the, the short circuits of what used what was considered uh, the bourgeois public sphere in its moment and what it's become in terms of the short circuits of what's supposed to be a flow of communication that turns into a legitimate law, right? Um, When our system is so influenced by money that it's hard to tell where political world formation and public opinion formation begin and private interests uh, influencing the legislative process end, it's hard to know whether our, you know, whether our regulatory system is actually reactive to the general interest rather than to private interests. Um, you know, would it, who owns the technology? Who gets to do what with the technology? How do they implement that, and how does it drive government policy? And I think we could talk about that both in the, in the context of the military um, and military contracting, and in the context of big tech, right? And how big tech plays. The roles big, big big tech plays in our lives. Um, I think we have this idea that big tech creates all these fantastic new products for us that are all free, right? Google, Facebook, Twitter, all these amazing things, and some of them which are not, like your iPhone and your cell phone and your tablet and your computer. But I don't think we realize that none of it is free, right? That there's always a marketing. I mean. Most of us do realize that by now, but initially I think it took a little while for us to catch on to the fact that um, we are basically turning over very fundamental data about our behavior to these companies that they are trying as hard as they can using very complex, very sophisticated big data analysis tools and algorithmic tools to monetize. And that this means that they have everything in their interest to make sure that the administrative the administrative state does not get in the way of their profit making initiatives in the interest of the public good let's say using data for different way in different ways making it accessible to different publics who might decide to wield it in more democratic ways and i think this gets to what you were talking about joshua how people are having there's a backlash of of uh, if i understand you correctly there's a backlash of all these people that are trying in a sense to capture recapture technology and say we want to have direct access to this technology, we want to use it, and we want to use it for ends that have nothing to do with money making necessarily. That have to do with community. That have to do with networking. That have to do with information flows. Uh, these are these are you, we could see how our very tradition, if we want to frame it that way, 
I think it's useful for us to frame it that way. Our, our liberal democratic tradition, our Republican liberal tradition, our Enlightenment institutional tradition, whatever you want to call it, is very much feeling the strain of these, uh, of these, uh, of of this new capacity, technological capacity. I mean, two thousand eight. What was two thousand eight? I mean, uh, it was an. It was. I mean, there's there's a lot of arguments about what two thousand eight was, right? But to an extent, it was, it was this financialization of the housing market, which was about people in the stock market. Uh, betting on whether people would be able to pay their mortgages or not, uh, coming up with these very complex instruments that nobody understood uh, to create uh, equity, which was basically a house of cards at the end of the day. Uh, but it's, it's since 2008, it's, that stuff has been eclipsed in ways that we can't even think of. I mean, what you were saying, Jason, in terms of data is more valuable than oil. Um, there are some fascinating articles about out there about futures uh, markets where you can bet, you know, where you can where you can hedge bets by betting, let's say, that uh, wheat is going to be worth so much in five years and and gold is going to be worth so much and oil is going to be worth so much. And so we're, we really have this sort of weird temporal, mm, I don't know what you want to call it, but this temporal disjoint in which our economic system is almost, especially if we're talking about things like Wall Street, it's no longer about banks funding small businesses and funding um, building factories. It's about uh, using algorithms in a way to try to see what you can, if you can tell what the future is going to be, so to see how much you can profit it, about it, with, with with side effects that are hard to, are really really difficult to to predict, uh, and that might and that really have nothing to do with classic economics and this notion of supply and demand, and really escape any kind of framework of whether whether uh, companies are actually producing anything that's useful to society or just sort of messing around with goods. And, and services the markets the markets put a very high price tag on that personal protect predictive data yep. and yet we don't share in any of the wealth generation on right. that right should we have property rights over that data and logistically how would that work so yeah. i mean one one of the things i liked about yang he was one of the only candidates who had i think the only candidate who had a data privacy policy yeah why why do we not um, see the profit ourselves for 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 that um, when companies can collect that data and sell it to anyone else, you know, and it's yeah. all happening uh, behind the scenes. But I mean, I think and that's one way to pose the question. Another way to pose the question would be, um, who owns the data? Is it a public? Is it something that people should have access to? For instance, and should shouldn't just be even if the right. even if they're being produced by. By let's say Google or so forth, should people have access to it? Should governments have access to it? Um, should le- legislative bodies and administrative bodies have access to it in the name of better policy, for instance? Uh, these are all open-ended questions. I'm not sure what the answer is, but but I think uh, I th- you know one of the one of the effects of uh, this kind of I mean I would call it and we haven't brought this word word, word up, but 40 years of a sort of neoliberal ideology has been. Um, not only as a sort of as a backlash to, to to the rise of the administrative state with the New Deal in World War II, has been a turn towards an ideology that uh, privatization is the best way to go. That public is always more clunky, more bureaucratic, more top down, less reactive, and so forth. Uh, number one, number two, opening up financial system, deregulating the financial system, delinking finance from everyday production. And industrial production, and and uh, and and number th- and number three, which I just lost my train of thought. Um, well, you were just were just saying, Jason, not uh, uh, intellectual property, making into making laws of intellectual property so, in a sense, uh, robust that it is difficult uh, for something, let's say, an idea or something produced, or I mean. Fact of the matter is, a lot of the stuff that's being marketed and used by, by, by big tech was, it's just stuff that was developed in in labs and, and so forth. The internet was literally turned over to private sector in the '90s, right? I was just reading about it today, um, in a in an article in a really interesting article in Places Journal. Uh, if you, I really suggest that you check it out if you get a chance. There's an 
article. It's a it's a really interesting uh, academic journal that but, but writes in a very sort of um, everyday language. It's called it's about smart cities. Um, it's called Smart Cities Buggy and Brittle, and it talks about some of the dangers that we have that we face with smart smart cities. And it and it goes over the history of the internet and talks about how you know the internet was you know. Uh, developed through programs like ARPANET and research and development programs done by the government. Then consortiums, university consortiums kind of took over. And then in the 90s, um, basically was turned over by the government to the private, the private sector. So you really, we really have something that's developed through taxes, through public research money, through public research dollars, and it's being monetized. Uh, now, I'm not saying that the, pri- that the private sector hasn't come up with you know, developed it and ref- refined it, and come to come uh, come up with a lot of new technologies. But a lot of the work has been done with public tax dollars, and they are the ones monetizing uh, and using this data, and 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 privatizing this data and technology, and making it unavailable for any kind of public use, for any kind of use that might be useful at the end of the day in terms of public interest. So I think there's another dim- tension there in terms of private versus public interests. Um, mm. I, I had a specific, you know, concrete case, and I think I'm not sure if we're going to have time with it because we're almost three hours in at this point. But, you know, I was going to talk about the the rise of the smart city paradigm as a governing paradigm. You might have heard of Sidewalk Labs. Uh, you might have heard of Hudson Yards and what's going on. Um, I can, you know, maybe we'll we'll go into that, maybe not. But, it, but it's the way in which a lot of urban governance uh, infrastructure governance has slowly it's there's a new rollout in places like New York under under mayors like Bloomberg who's now a presidential candidate a rollout of of a new platforms they call it that platforms for the city in which you know they're basically turning over the city management to Google and to, to be sort of dramatic about it it's more a little more technical than that and it's about letting Google basically use its technologies and platforms um, in tandem with uh, developers and so forth, to produce totally computerized, ubiquitously computerized environments in which uh, all all these sensors pick up all kinds of information that then supposedly can be used not only to uh, make city infrastructures more reactive to consumers, um, but also, uh, and also make them sort of automatic in the way they function. So in a way, decouple them from politics, which I think is very problematic if we think about and discuss what that means. Uh, but also to make sort of like, but also to make the city itself a, 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 an engine for new monetizing schemes that all that data can create all kinds of, can derive into all sorts of new technologies and new products that we can't even imagine yet. You know, so goes the story of, of if we use, if we let, sort of Google run the city. Not only will it maximize efficiency, this goes back to this idea of efficiency as a sort of ultimate end and ultimate good uh, for, the, for the political public sphere, the urban public sphere, but also um, maximizing monetization by those who are managing our, right, they're not going to, Google's not going to manage our, our cities for free. They're going to look for a way to make money off of it. So these I think this is very, I could go into detail in some elements. I'm, I could also point out for, to some really people who are interested, I can point out some interesting articles. Um, one of them is the one I just mentioned, Smart Cities Buggy and Brittle in Places Journal, which is a really fascinating article that talks about everything that, all the things we don't think about um, that could go wrong in terms of risks with something like the smart city. If we, if we link up every city infrastructure to, to algorithms and to data and to, and to computer, um, to, to computer systems. I think it's interesting that, you know, people generally, consumers, citizens, I mean, they talk a lot about not being okay with this mass data, data collection. Mm-hmm. But when push comes to shove, they don't really fight too hard when kind of offered a service that is wholly contingent on this kind of data collection. You know, the thing of, there's a Delta Airlines uh, example. Recently, they were pilot, piloting a, a biometric data system at the Atlanta airport. And the company reported that uh, of nearly 25,000 customers traveling to Atlanta each week, 98% opted into the pilot, given that the facial recognition option was saving an average of two seconds for each customer at boarding, 
or nine minutes when boarding a wide body aircraft. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's there's like a kind of irresistible convenience here, yeah. which for many seems to outweigh perceived costs to personal liberties yeah. when push comes to shove. I, I would I would I would say for sure I think that's the case, and I would ask the question though. You know why is that the case, right? And and let me give you another example. I think people are more apt to use Uber if they don't have any other option, right? It's super convenient. But but why is there no other option? Why is there no good public transportation? Why is why do the bus systems not run on every five ten minutes rather than every hour? Um, why is there no there's no option? So what else are you going to do, right? Uh, plus the way it's being funded by by big by uh, capital from Silicon Valley, it can run on a loss. Uber doesn't make any money. Uber Uber saturates the market and uh, and uses contractors and the their algorithms and the fact that they're financed by big tech and don't need to make any money to drive prices down artificially and compete with taxis. Um, to to drive taxis out of business and to sort of take over the market. I mean, I'm being very Machiavellian the way I'm talking about it. But if you, I think I would urge people to to read about the sort of business models of some of these some of these firms like Uber and realize that it's actually their sort of their sort of short game is uh, artificially drive down prices because they don't make any money. You know, for for years they haven't made any money, but they're funded by by so much money. There's so much capital behind them that they don't need to make any money. That's not the the point. The point is to sort of create a framework for moving people around cities, which is private and not public. Uh, I know people get into a discussion about what they prefer in terms of public transportation versus private transportation, but there's no there's no option. So of course I want to take an Uber if I have to go downtown in a city where there's where the, I'm going to either walk for two hours, take a, a taxi for thirty dollars, or wait for a bus for two hours. Right, I can take the Uber for fifteen dollars. Um, you know, I would say, I would say, what else, what other? You know, when we get on the internet, we have absolutely, as citizens, we have absolutely. There's almost no connection between us, the laws that are being made, the platforms that are being done, what they're being used for. Uh, Google and Facebook have a lot more, a lobbying muscle than any individual citizen does. Uh, maybe you know, maybe groups of citizens come together and of course that changes the equation a little bit but me as an individual i can rant about facebook all i want but at the end of the day facebook can sit down on the table with politicians and i can't right let's let's think about google and facebook who who really stumbled upon this gold mine that is big data in the early 21st century and you know even companies like ford you know given waning car sales are slowly transforming into aggregators and sellers of data but but you know if, if we think about what happened with Facebook and Google? Let's take Google. You know, the company went public in 2004 and revenues increased by 3,590%. And how's that possible? You know, the right. markets anticipated the value of Google's growing repository of behavioral data and predictive analytical models, and they rushed to share in the wealth creation. And this is one of the reasons why Uber is able to survive for the, the same kind of human futures trade. So, you know, we can begin to realize the spooky potentials of big data monopolies in 2012 and 2014. Going back to Zuboff, she mentions that Facebook's contagion experiments where corporate researchers planted subliminal cues and manipulated social comparisons attempting to influence user behaviors. This is a kind of modern strategic action, which is derivative of the old strategic action that affected the fall of 18th century intellectualism. But in 2012, Facebook attempted to influence users to um, to vote in midterm elections. And in 2014, they attempted to influence users' emotional states, you know, sad or happy. So, And Facebook's experiments determined that it was possible to manipulate online cues to influence real-world behavior and feelings, and that this could be accomplished while successfully bypassing users' awareness. Yeah. And Google has done experiments like this as well. Here's, here's a quick story that I was kind of telling you, Juan, before we started recording. I, I went on a date in 2016, <laughs> and for three hours, this girl could barely keep her eyes off her phone, her iPhone. And no, she wasn't waiting for an important call. She was playing what Zuboff calls the Google incubated augmented reality game Pokemon Go. (laughs) (laughs) 
And what was the objective of this game? It's to catch Pokemon? No, not really. The objective was to drive consumer traffic to Starbucks, McDonald's, local partners who paid a fee to subliminally advertise themselves through Pokemon Go. And who knows what data Google was able to collect on millions of people like my date who were literally addicted to this game. Yeah. So we know that companies like Facebook and Google have been doing this kind of stuff for many years now. Um, This is how they do business and remain competitive, even in a political environment that isn't pleasant to them. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, people will still pay for data. It's much like the oil industry, I think, in in that respect. So we can see even spookier things happening now as a result of the data markets. Look no further than Cambridge Analytica, a small political consulting firm who in 2016 harvested personal data on millions of people and they use that data to target vulnerable individuals and propagandize at them to influence their political choices yeah. you know this is what happens when strategic action and technology come together yeah you know, zuboff understands the surveillance capitalist monopolization of knowledge as a form of social inequality or she calls it um, epistemic inequality and this harkens back to the information asymmetries of pre-gutenberg societies characterized by illiteracy and limited means of distributing knowledge. So thinking beyond the influence of the data markets, perhaps another reason why lawmakers have failed to pass data privacy regulations is what Zuboff calls the unwritten policy of surveillance exceptionalism, which is forged in the aftermath of September 11th. Uh, And when the government's concerns shifted from online privacy protections to a new zeal for total information awareness. So in retrospect, the rise of modern private military contractors and the rise of surveillance capitalists are uniquely compatible pairing. They work together, they complement each other in, in kind of an interesting way. They can both be understood as part and parcel of a kind of unchecked security state. Mm-hmm. So what might we be concerned about here? You know, we've, and we've talked about some of this. Extreme forms of reliable strategic action that are based on predictive analysis, further constricting democracy, Lack of resources to counter spread of misinformation. And companies becoming too big to fail, Silicon Valley companies, enabled to make irresponsible decisions posing serious risks to consumers without recourse. The government's lack of knowledge and resources to effectively understand and manage these risks, much like their contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan. And... The exteriorization of critical and analytical faculties to big tech companies and artificial yeah. intelligence. So if, if we think back to Percy's norm against the use of mercenaries, uh, you know, isn't there also a norm that is nested in the Enlightenment and liberal traditions against stealing someone's property? So like uh, going back to what I was saying before, I, I feel like we should be primed to care about protecting our personal data. Um, but we don't seem to. And that's just an interesting observation to me. We are actually going to cut the interview right there and pick up next time with the fourth and final segment of this long collaborative episode. And that will be the end, possibly, of all of the interviews. Um, Unless I have another one that comes up in the next two weeks, it's always a possibility, but I do not think so. I think that will be the end of the interviews and collaborations, and I'll go ahead and start getting into the uh, more normal-for-me solo format of presenting information, and I'll get more specific on specific topics and parallels and flesh this stuff out a little more, but with a more focused perspective instead of this format with the interviews and discussions that's a little more broad, encompasses a lot of different things, doesn't really focus on one specific thing at all, and they're longer. Again, my goal for season two was to have episodes that were closer to 30 minutes so that uh, people that don't have a whole lot of time to dedicate can still get some good content but not feel like they have to set aside an hour of their time to get the full episode. And I don't know if I'll be able to do that or not. I have not actually recorded any of those episodes quite yet. Sometimes I get them a few weeks in advance and sometimes I don't. So we will see. That's my goal. But I don't know, judging by my historical record, that might not actually happen, but I will try.
Around the same time as me releasing this episode, I will be releasing another part on the Patreon page. So last week, I did part one of an interview I did on the Canon Thinks podcast. So that one, he wanted me to come on and talk about conspiracies. And so we had plenty to discuss. We did a very long interview and talked about all kinds of stuff. And so I released the first half of that on the Patreon page, and I'll release the second half uh, this week in place of um, this episode, since the Patreon members have gotten all of the segments of this interview when I released the first episode on the main feed. And so that'll be their kind of new content. But I also added a page on the website on ourfoundations.podbean.com. And that has all the guest appearances. It has the guest appearances that I have made on other podcasts with a link to them. And it also has a list of the guests that I had on this show with a link to them as well. So now you have an easier place to at least see those and check them out if you're interested. Again, the patrons get it all in one place and they have their private podcast feed and um, that's more convenient. I want to uh, basically give a token of appreciation for their support, but I also don't want to alienate other people and exclude my content. The whole point of me doing this is to get content out there for everybody for free. And I don't want to really limit access entirely. So if you're willing to do just a little bit of digging, you can find out where I've been and go listen to those if you're interested. But if you are a patron, it's all in one place. It'll all be right there. It'll update you, all that kind of stuff. Plus, you do get a few other bonus um perks. There's some merchandise, depending on which level you give at. There's two options there. Um, If you do the higher one, you get some merchandise and some better perks. But the even the lowest one, you are able to ask a question or ask about a topic or something that you're interested in that you want me to cover. And I'll do an exclusive episode on it. Or maybe I'll do an episode where I pair some of those together And so you'll be able to request a piece of content. And there's a few other things that you can get as well. And so that's definitely worth checking out if you want to support the show, or if you just want to maybe gain access to some of those perks, you are welcome to check out the Patreon page there, the links in the show notes. And other than that, I was on another show today, actually, the day I'm recording this. And that one was a pretty interesting one. We talked about roughly the COVID experience and what's going on in the world, how that's affecting people, and got into a lot of stuff about learning and alternatives and how to uh, basically like fight the system without actually fighting the system, agorism and things like that. So that was a really interesting one. Whenever uh, she gets that all edited and compiled and everything, I will release that as well on the Patreon page and I'll add that link um, on the actual website as well. So keep an eye out for those things. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for ratings and for reviews. I actually did just see the other day that there are two other reviews that I hadn't seen before. So I want to give a shout out to you people and I greatly appreciate it. It looked like you guys are not in the States. I don't know exactly where. Uh, From what I can tell, it's Russia and Brazil. So if that's the case, thank you very much for listening. Uh, The Brazil one is Tupi Rio, and they said that it's one of the best podcasts they had ever listened to and uh, that they liked the information and the point of view and that kind of stuff. So thank you very much. That's very nice to hear. And the other one was someone in Russia going by Julia Breva, and she just said, just amazing. Thank you. So that definitely makes me feel good. I greatly appreciate the compliments and I am glad that you are enjoying that. And thank you specifically for taking the time to write a review. I know it's just a sentence or a few words, but it really does help and it encourages other people to listen. And so I really appreciate that. And thank you for anybody that's even just left a rating where you can just click the stars and be done. That also is very helpful as well. So thank you all. Thank you just for listening. I really appreciate having listeners. It's very cool. And I am humbled that people are interested and are enjoying this and have good things to say about it. So thanks again. I'm out. Peace.
This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.